If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. These augmented reality effects that you're seeing are not CGI. They're being created right in front of you. You know, are there ways to add audience interaction into the show? Are there ways to do things that can't be done in regular live theater? Theater has always been about experimentation and innovation. But New York-based performance troupe Technodramatists takes those to a new level. Their live performances incorporate emerging technology, including augmented reality and motion capture, virtual stage sets, virtual characters, and a lot of other technology-enhanced effects can all be a part of their shows. And they've developed several performance tools, which they're now making available to fellow creatives. Lauren Spark is the founder and CEO slash artistic director of Technodramatists. Lauren, before we get to talking about Technodramatists and all the cool stuff you're doing, what first appealed to your creative imagination? Did you first fall in love with storytelling, art, or technology? Oh, definitely storytelling. I have wanted to be a writer since as long as I could remember. My grandmother was a writer. She gave me my first notebook when I was 15. When I went on a trip, she wrote a... She wrote about her whole life from before 1949 and the Holocaust. She started writing after the Holocaust, all the way from her journey to Canada and making a life and everything like that. And she kind of knew, she knew I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be a writer. And I started writing short stories and poetry. I went to film school. Then I realized that theater was my love. Started writing plays, producing my own work here in Montreal, Canada. Then I moved to New York City, got my MFA in playwriting from the New School for Drama. And then that's when theater took over my life officially. What an amazing grandmother. What a legacy she gave to you. Uh, That's an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I can't put it into words, but that's (laughs) incredible. When did you first realize the power of technology like you're using right now with the AR and the motion capture to tell those stories? So specifically for AR and motion capture, I was working on an animation project. It was actually 20, must have been 2017. And uh, Trump was elected and I was very depressed and it was really, really hard to write. And I literally Googled like, what do people do in this situation now with this kind of like Trump depression? And all the things, all kind of things on the internet were like, try to use your skill set that you have to do good. And I just basically emailed all of these kind of smaller not-for-profits and like who needs production services, who needs animation done? Because I was basically, I was a playwright, but as I was trying to make it as a playwright, I was doing animation gigs on the side. And I was working on this animation project for the Sylvia Rivera Project, which is a trans rights law group in New York City. And then the software I was using had an update where with the iPhone X, which was new at the time, you can do motion capture. And then instead of working on that project for like three days, all I was doing was playing this motion capture. And I brought it to them and realized that they could actually have these authentic performances in the video we were making. And it kind of just stuck in my brain. And then kind of realized like, oh my God, like there's, there's, this technology is really easy to use and incredibly powerful. Actually in grad school, so in grad school, we were just four people in the program. So we didn't get to choose any classes, except we had one opportunity to take a, it was called tech and performance class with Parsons. And in that class, I ended up writing this really dark and weird video game about a mother dealing with the, the loss of their child. I didn't have a kid yet at that time, but it was 
pretty intense. And I'm like, oh, wow, there are all these different, it was a VR game. And they were, it never got finished because that's life in VR games. But it made me realize like, wow, there are all these new technologies out there. But I also realized like a lot of these tech people don't necessarily know how to connect it to storytelling. And then through that class, I got connected with this amazing artist called Rosalind Paradise. And she asked me to work with her on an AR exhibition project, like an art project with AR, where you had two, you had a table set up with like table settings, knife, fork, all of those things. And she programmed it so that when you lift up and manipulate these items, an audio story starts playing and she needed help writing the audio story. And I just remember like, and she's brilliant, but like something like so silly for a storyteller, like, oh, this character needs motivation. And she was like, oh, that's brilliant. And I was like, oh man, like there's such a deficit in the technology that exists today and the people making them are brilliant, but not necessarily storytellers. And she's showing me all of these like sensors. She's like a pile of sensors on the floor. I'm like, was it like a hundred thousand dollars? She's like, no, they're like $10 each now. It's like nothing. And I was just like, all of these different experiences kind of pulled together in my brain. I was actually taking a long drive one day. I was driving back to Canada from New York and it just kind of hit me like, there's something here that's bigger than just one thing. Like there, we need to create a place for storytellers to use this technology. And that was kind of where Technodramatist was born on that car ride was like, we need to make it easy for people to use these incredible new tools, AR, motion capture, all these sensors, spatial computing, things like that. You have the epiphany, you have $10 sensors, <laughs> you know Technodramatist is going to happen. What happened for you next? So I was like, well, we needed a first project and an, another weirdly dark silver lining on the Trumpian thing was it was the day after the election and a colleague of mine, a really, really wonderful director named Noah Agozi, she was directing a one woman Shakespeare adaptation of Taming of the Shrew at the International Solo Festival in New York. And it was like 11 in the morning, which is like not even a good time for theater anyways. And everybody's in there and it's like, it feels so, so dark. And then this performer, Claire Tires the first lines of the show, I, I don't remember, I have a bad memory for Shakespeare, but it's a rhyming couplet that's like, hey, I know stuff is dark, but can everyone just take a breath and enjoy themselves for the next hour? And then she put on this tour de force, one woman show of Taming of the Shrew. And then it hit me, I was talking to them and they're like, let's do a one person Shakespeare adaptation, but using this facial mocap technology. So let's do Comedy of Errors, which already is a show about mistaken identity, that could really lend itself to, the technology could really lend itself to this sort of thing, right? We didn't, like even before I knew philosophically what the company was, I knew we can't just throw this technology on top of something. It can't just be a hat on a hat, right? How can it make a story better? And a story about mistaken identity, right? It's two sets of twins that get separated at birth or when they're little, and then, you know, they end up in the same place and hijinks ensues. So she was gonna play all the characters just switching with the face puppet that she would play. So we started working on that project and we started building the technology at the same time, which kind of became our philosophy that we're always going to build whatever we build with a project in mind to make sure that it really makes sense for the people that are going to use it, right? If it makes sense only for technologists and people with incredible computer backgrounds, then it really limits the amount of people who can end up playing with it. And since this is a new medium that we're kind of creating, if we don't give it to the hands of artists. We don't let artists figure out what to do with it. Then we're not going to figure out really what this medium can do, what this type of storytelling could do. So we started with that production, a comedy of errors. We called it errors, a comedy of, and it was, we made it as part of a bigger festival that we created in 2019. And it was uh, 
a pretty big success. It was a pretty exciting project. What if someone listening right now is an artist and they say, as you've just referenced, well, I'm not technical. How would I do some of this cool stuff? The motion capture, the facial motion capture, anything of that nature. What are the resources you like? Well, so we create our own tools. The resources are you contact us and we have a discussion on, on how we can make it happen. So we have We Are Live, which is our facial capture tool, which is specifically designed for live performance. So you have an iPhone on you. It's tracking you. It could track you from up to six feet away. And it does really, really beautiful and amazing motion capture. And you don't have to do anything. You just do your performance and it's going to capture your performance. We also make all our tools controllable, both by the performer themselves or by someone in the booth, like a regular theater, like lighting or lighting or projections or, or sound. So for instance, the person could actually have a controller on them that they are pressing to change the characters back and forth. That was something actually really exciting we figured out during the Comedy of Airs production was that we were controlling from the booth and she was going back and forth, back and forth, and it didn't really feel natural. And she asked, can I control this myself? And we actually figured out a way to rig a Nintendo Switch controller and we stuck it on her person. It was a great controller. She was wearing gray. You could hardly see it. And she was able to just, with a quick touch of the finger, switch back and forth between all of the different avatars that she was controlling. And that could come with a number of different controllers that could be controlled with buttons, with clicks. We could even turn your face into a controller so that when you do a specific facial movement, that actually makes something happen. So that can make an animation happen. That can make you switch characters, all sorts of things like that. We really want the tools to be as versatile as possible. So yeah, We Are Live is our facial capture technology. And again, super easy to use. You could have also fully immersive backgrounds, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, interactive objects in the scene. It even has live cameras. You can zoom in, zoom out, pan, all of that in real time, right? Again, the most important thing for us is that all of this is happening directly in front of the audience, whether that's a live audience in person or a streaming audience, is that it's one-to-one. The actor does something, the audience sees it. So even if they mess up, it's part of the beauty. You know, something goes wrong, the audience sees it. The facial capture glitches for a second, the audience sees it. But that's that's the excitement, right? Is that it, this is not just a slick production, right? That's not what this is. People aren't coming to see theater because they want to see everything perfect. They come to theater because they want to see this human experience where, you know, anything can go wrong. It's that everybody kind of takes this half breath together, knowing that this is going to be exciting and this is going to be just for now, just for us who are experiencing this right now. You put your finger on the magic, I think, of theater is that things are going to go wrong. We are human beings. Things are not going to go exactly according to plan and it's not perfect. And that's life. What about coming out of the darkness of 2020. You had this wonderful performance laboratory going and boom, the pandemic hits. Would you yeah, take so we had, we had a, uh, I mean, it seems like 10 minutes ago and also like 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, on February 27th, we had a packed show at the Improv Asylum in Chelsea for AutoCorrect, which is our AR improv troupe. And that was like our third show in a month and we were really gaining momentum and it was super fun. And then it was like, what, like a week or two later where basically everything shut down. And it was, it took a lot of soul searching. Like I, you know, just from experts, which I was trusting was like, this is going to be a long time. This is going to be a year, right? So the question is, do we, do we just plan for the future? Like we're a tech company. We could just, you know, we're a tech and theater company, but the tech side, maybe let's just develop tech and not worry about productions for X amount of time, right? Or should we try to do this new thing? Should we try to create Zoom theater? which, you know, wasn't what I wanted to do. No part of me ever wanted to do live stream theater because it's that distance. But I kind of realized like we have some advantages over other theater companies in that we understand technology, even if we don't experts in the streaming space, which we would have to become as much as possible. 
And after about, I don't remember anymore, a month or two of kind of soul searching and trying to figure out what to do, we dove headfirst in and we took this production called Alibi, which is supposed to be a live show. It wasn't called Alibi at the time. It's an, an adaptation of a 1924 data play called Handkerchief of Clouds. And we were working with Grammy award-winning experimental musician Johnny Butler and the dance duo A&A to create this, this kind of weird, somewhat abstract theater slash dance show. And we decided, okay, we're going to turn this into a live stream production. How do we do that? Right? How are ways that we make the audience feel that we're taking that breath together? Right? How do we make that danger, that scariness? How do we break through the screen is kind of the expression that we that we started to use. And, and a lot of the ways are the ways that we do it anyways, right? Is that we need to make people realize this is happening right now. We need to make people realize in the first few minutes of the show, something could go wrong. We need to make people realize that these augmented reality effects that you're seeing are not CGI. They're not coming on afterwards. They're being created right in front of you. You know, are there ways to add audience interaction into the show? Are there ways to do things that can't be done in regular live theater? You know, I think we had to make that kind of leap that we're not doing theater, that this is not actually theater anymore. It's theatrical. It's a theatrical experience, but it's something different. And we need to figure out what that means and, and how to do that for every specific show. And then, you know, there were certainly dark moments, but as we started to break open some of these things, there were some exciting parts about it too, realizing that there are ways we can connect with audiences in, in ways we couldn't do it before. Could we actually turn our motion capture tools to the audience and have them control things in the show, right? Something like that, which is pretty magical. And then of course, the fact that you can, anybody in the world can see your show without coming to New York City, right? So like I, you know, I grew up here in, in Montreal and, you know, often have, a, well, we're so sorry, we can't see your shows, Lauren. Well, here, boom, get in front of your computer, you know, and you could come see our show. And, and that's kind of like, the silver lining of this whole thing. I'm definitely excited to get back to butts in the seats, but I think that, you know, a portion of our work will still be probably live streaming, you know, for the indefinite future. You're probably going to have a hybrid now. What was one dark moment and what was one, whoa, exciting discovery that you made in this process? Oh, wow. <laughs> a dark moment. <laughs> I feel like I've shoved those all to the back of my brain. They're hard to pull out. I mean, we had some moments where, you know, we lost performers because they weren't comfortable with the, with doing work in person, right? Like safety was always the most important thing in any of the productions we've done over the last year. And, you know, we bought our own set of COVID tests and we put in strict protocols, basically taking like the New York state protocols and putting them into place in our productions, even if we, you know, we were small enough that we didn't necessarily have to. But, you know, so, but some people, and, you know, we always were open about this. Like if you at any point don't feel comfortable, voice that. And some people at certain times voice that, you know, whether it was because they had to move away for other reasons, take care of family, or they simply, you know, didn't feel comfortable with the level of risk as mitigated as we were able to do it. And, you know, you know, having someone leave a project, we lost one performer about maybe like about, I think if, if I recall a month before the show, we had to replace one of, you know, there's only four performers in the show. So they're all main performers. We ended up having a wonderful replacement, but that was certainly, uh, especially in a, in a show that you're devising where the roles are being tailored to specific people. So I would say our, a lot of our dark moments were kind of losing cast members due to, you know, reasonable reasons due to the pandemic. I will say the first in-person rehearsal that we had, which again, we had the three basically dancers, they created their own bubble. So they had been working together for a few weeks, not on Zoom. 
So they had been seeing each other. And then I came back to New York and we did our first, you know, socially distanced with mass rehearsal in an actual rehearsal room. And I kind of like broke down crying because it was so beautiful. It was like, oh my God, like, this is what we do. We create things together in a room. And like, it was just like, we were all feeling it. Like we all, we wanted to hug so badly, but like, obviously we couldn't. And that was a really, really beautiful moment. And then, you know, going into the theater, going into the beautiful historic Gene Frankel Theater in Soho for Loden. And just like, you know, I, I actually, one of my designers, I, I had realized until I saw her in person, I had never met her in, in person because we had brought her on in the midst of the pandemic. All of our meetings were on Zoom or whatever. And then suddenly like, oh my God, we're, we're six feet away from each other. That's incredible. I will say what was weird was, is wrapping a show and like not being able to go to a bar and just like have that celebration drink. Like what we do like in theater takes so long and like there's so little immediate gratification and like you kind of delay, delay, delay. And then you have that burst after, but we all kind of just like awkwardly stood out in the cold outside the theater. Once we wrapped the show, <laughs> just like three, four feet apart and just like, oh yeah, kind of having chit chat. And then after like half an hour, you know, it's February, it's cold outside. We're like, okay, I guess we'll all see each other. And that was, that was, I would say a, a little bittersweet moment. <laughs> That would have to be different. Did I understand correctly that Alibi was one night, February 6th, and that was it? You only had one opening night and that was, you didn't have other performances? Or am I mistaken about that? Yeah, that's correct. Just just the logistics of it, of getting everyone together, of renting a theater, of keeping everyone safe, because we need people to, the performers are not wearing masks during the show. The only way we were able to do it with the budget that we had was to do it one night only. And I mean, we sold like sold out is definitely in quotations because it's a, it's a virtual show. So we could have sold more, but we, in the, the Zoom subscription that we purchased, we did sell out. I guess we could have gotten a bigger Zoom subscription, but uh, yeah, it was one night only. We had 150 people in the audience approximately, and we're looking for another opportunity to do it again, either remounting this live stream version or potentially getting our, our bodies together in a space for a live show in the near future. When you say looking for another opportunity, how do people find out more about Technodramatists and how can they best support you? Oh, well, the best way is to go to our website and sign up for our newsletter. And that's anytime we have a anything that you can see, whether in person or live stream, they'll hit you there. Also, our social media always has all of that stuff, but also shows fun experiments we're doing. And if you want to see the latest, you know, weird technology things that we're doing that I'm that I and the team are figuring out. Definitely our Instagram is fun and our Twitter, I try to be a little bit more personal on. We have a blog that I really need to get better at posting more regularly, but you can sign up for that on our website as well. But definitely the newsletter is is A1 in, in that regard. And if you'd like a quick look at a live technodramatist performance, you'll get that opportunity. We're doing a bunch of pop-up concerts, which I, I think is another exciting media. You know, theater, it's not my I love music, but I'm terrible at it. So it's really fun that I get to be uh, part of some of these music productions, which hopefully if you sign up for our newsletter, you'll you'll definitely be aware of and can come check out. Usually they're free and relatively short. And then also if anyone ever is looking to experiment with some new technology or just wants to chat about it, like this is my love. This is what I love to do. And I'm always open to meeting new folks and having like this type of discussion and seeing like, I don't, I know I don't have all the answers. So I'm just excited to meet different people and figure out these answers together. Technodramatist.com. I love something you said on your blog. As you are getting ready for your opening night, you say something always goes wrong and it will. What went wrong and how'd you troubleshoot it on your opening night? Oh, Lordy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, so we had, we're only allowed to have 10 people in the theater, including the four performers. So that's a crew of six to run 
all the regular theater stuff, lights, projections, sound, then our facial sync system, we are live, and our motion capture AR system, absolute motion. So just having everybody do five jobs was insane. And there were going to be little things that went through the cracks. Also, the theater is like really old and we were plugged in way too many things. So we were having like power surges that we had to deal with. So we had to constantly like make sure everything was charged because sometimes even plugged in, our devices would be draining. So just like having like, okay, all six of the crew members always remembering to turn everything off whenever can, on whenever we can. That was a problem that was insane and not super fun. You know, because like, you have a certain plug and a certain outlet go off and that's your Wi-Fi. And then suddenly none of the devices are communicating with each other. We're not communicating with streaming. Luckily that never happened. We had that on its own kind of, we had the router on its own device. So like no matter what goes wrong, the stream will go on, but there were definitely little things that went wrong during the show that, you know, the cast and crew notices, but I, hopefully the, usually the audience doesn't, but it was wild. It was definitely wild. Also like me, like I'm a, I'm a playwright and I'm a producer. I'm not usually the person in there pressing the buttons, running boards, but I was forced to do that. And like, that gave me so much anxiety. (laughs) Like I like to sit in the back row and watch the audience's reaction. Like that's my normal watching a play thing. Well, here there's no audience to watch. So that's one thing. And then B, I'm literally my hands on the controllers, like actually deploying AR effects in real time. Although I actually really enjoyed the experience. I think I learned a lot about what we can improve for next time just by being the person with his hands on the buttons. But it was it's definitely not something that that's usually in my wheelhouse. I'm hearing baptism by fire here. <laughs> I would be tearing my hair if I had to deal with this kind of stuff. <laughs> when you have something like the brick wall scene or when you have an AR rose, what are some of the considerations for the performers to make this work? Yeah, so I think what's beautiful about theater performers is that they're constantly working with things that are invisible, right? They're constantly using their imaginations and their amazing body work to do things that are that symbolize things or that show things or that object work, like as they say, like an improv, you know? So like they really have an amazing ability at just hitting their marks, whether there's a physical thing there or not. So a lot of it is just getting a few reps in. But again, the cast and crew were amazing. We ran the show, I think that the live show was maybe the fourth or fifth time that we actually did it from start to finish with everything. But other than that, like the, we, you know, we have a monitor system set up so that they can actually see in real time what's going on. And part of the training or the practice is, you know, how do you kind of sneak that glance to make sure that you're on cue on your mark without, you know, completely just like moving your head. But again, like it wasn't even that hard from the directorial standpoint to make them do that. Cause they just kind of naturally were really, really good at, at hitting their marks. The other thing is that we have a rehearsal sandbox app, which we just loaded onto a cell phone and we give them the phone and they're actually able to rehearse wherever they are as much as they want. And we use that both for devising and creating the show and also for rehearsing those kind of more visual moments so that they could just go in their apartment. Or I know in the beginning they were going to a park and they were just using the technology in the park because all they had to have was their cell phone. And if they wanted a monitor, just they could mirror it to a laptop. We just gave them some simple kind of, you know, off the shelf mirroring software and boom, they could basically rehearse, I don't know, 60% of the way there without anything but a cell phone and a laptop. I got wowed looking at your video. We've got a saxophonist playing inside of a shower. We've got people walking in the virtual rain. This is mind blowing. I recommend that people take a good look at this. 
we've talked about the dark stuff, but what besides the beautiful moments that you had rehearsing, would you say was one of the most exciting, fun things that happened for you as you were doing Alibi, as you look to the future with Technodramatists? I, I mean, whenever I love to see someone who's not necessarily a tech person and that moment where they see something and it clicks and they're like, whoa, there are creative possibilities here, right? Like a lot of theater folk are not necessarily the best at change and don't necessarily embrace new things. Like they always do, but it, there's usually like a push and pull. Like I always talk about how when like projection screens or like LED screens started in like the, I guess the early thousands, mid thousands, everyone hated it. And now like every single where you go, like Mean Girls the Musical uses it and nobody bats an eye. And like, so I think that's, it's fun to, it's fun to be the people pulling theater folk in that process, right? Like there's a moment like, where suddenly two dancers are dancing and we show them for the first time this brick wall building in between them and they could see it and they could feel it and it and as really good performers it affects the way that they react to one another right it becomes this alive thing in the scene and watching that click and watching like a whoa and then ideas spinning from there like that's magic but that's kind of why i started this in the first place was so that everybody could get involved and kind of use this technology and see how cool it can really be you mentioned new technology. You mentioned looking for an opportunity to do Alibi again. But looking down the road, what else are you looking at doing with Technodramatists that can tempt our listeners to join you? Sure. Our next big... So we do productions with, with other companies too. We do collaborations and, and we help other companies who want to use our tool set. But our next big project is called Mystic AR Cabaret. And it's a burlesque show and an interdimensional kind of whodunit mixed together. And this was our first show that we conceived originally for live streaming. And we're like, how do we really take advantage of this new medium? And we wanted to emulate the, the experience of taking on and off AR glasses, right? So seeing AR effects when you want to, and then not seeing them when you don't want to. So we've created this little platform called Parallela, where with the click of a button, you can either see the AR effects or not see their effects. And every audience member can do this individually as if they have their own set of AR glasses with them. And basically the show is there's two performers at this mystic cabaret where the muse, the goddess of all creativity is the host. And she's also a detective because she knows something's going wrong there. And every night she's realized that one of these two performers is actually evil trying to take down the mystic cabaret, but she needs the audience's help to figure out which one of these two performances is evil every single night. So the clues are both in the augmented reality and hidden by the augmented reality. So as you watch this amazing burlesque show, and we're so fortunate that we have really some of the best, most exciting burlesque acts in New York City, which is the best in the world really, in this show. So as you're watching these already exciting and fun burlesque acts, you're also clicking back and forth between AR and not AR and trying to figure out this kind of puzzle game to determine who's evil or not. And at the end of the show, the audience comes together and votes and one of the characters gets banished and one of them doesn't. And then you find out if you were right or not. And it's kind of an ongoing series. So you can watch any individual show and it's its own kind of discrete, fun experience. But you can also come back and back over and over again and kind of see how the whole story arc builds over time. So that's our next big show that we're really excited about, which we're hoping to premiere this summer, probably late July. It's, it's definitely the puzzle, making sure that the puzzle is both engaging and also not overwhelming to the theater of it, that is probably our biggest challenge that we're dealing with right now. 
I hope you're going to be live streaming this for those of us that aren't in New York City. Yeah, so this is going to be this is going to start as a live stream show. So it'll be available wherever you are. And then we'll be working towards building the live version slash hybrid version later in probably 2022. Exciting times here. Finally, Lauren, we talked about your incredible grandmother at the beginning. A hundred years from now, what would you like your grandchildren and great-grandchildren to say they learned from their grandfather, Lauren, about innovation, creativity, and making a difference? So it's funny because like I like the word storytelling has become like the two words that are like so important to like my work at Technodramatist are storytelling and like immersiveness. And they're probably the two biggest buzzwords of the day where they they kind of don't mean anything. So I, I don't like to, to use them that much, but like take away immersiveness for the moment. But storytelling really is the key, right? Like it's it's got to be a human experience. You've got to show that you have characters who people care about changing because that's, that's the way we touch people, right? I've always been a political person. You know, my grandmother, her work was inherently political just by the nature of who she was and her, her lifetime experiences. And like, you can never change people's minds or their hearts by like telling them something, by teaching them something. I was a teacher for a long time, but uh, you know, you can teach someone something, but you can't necessarily change their opinion just by giving them facts and figures. And I think that's probably also the most important thing of the most important themes of, of our time now is like these multiple realities that we live in. So I think, I hope that like you can touch people by just telling a good story, like the rest of it, the effects, the cool technology, it's, it's secondary, it's tertiary, it's, it only matters if the story is, is human and the story connects with people. Like I've, I've seen too many shows that were cool and that you never think about again. So we, we just like find something that matters to you and connect to people in a human way with, with a story, right? Like, and you know, just folks sitting around a fire, like remember that, remember how important that is and that real change can be done with that because you could reach people who are different than you because we all have common experiences. We all have things that connect with one another, no matter how different we are. And if you just spell them out, it kind of just hits people in the brain and it bounces off. But if you just tell a story, it has a way of penetrating people in a, in a way that, that could actually necessitate, you know, subtle, but, but possibly really significant change. Lauren, thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure. You and I have been listening to Lauren Spark founder and CEO slash artistic director of New York-based live entertainment troupe Technodramatists. Find out more about Technodramatists' upcoming performances, including their pop-up concerts and their next show, Mystic AR Cabaret, by signing up for their newsletter at technodramatists.com. That's technodramatists.com, and be sure to follow them on Twitter and Instagram. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.